Now let us turn to the passage that we read, and that's chapter 1, chapters, uh, John chapter 3, and verse 16. A very well-known verse, perhaps one of the best-known verses in the Bible. Before we move forward on this verse, I think it will help us to just ask the question, what is the purpose of evangelistic services such as we are having at this time? What is the purpose of having special services for what we call evangelism? Well, is it in order that we might force some conversions? I hope not, because we cannot. We might manufacture conversions, and some people do, but only God can bring about true conversions. We must not try to do God's work for him. And that is the caution that we must always exercise when we're preaching evangelistically, preaching to the unconverted. We must always remember that there is a work in conversion which God has reserved to himself and which he has not committed or delegated to any human being. And that's the miracle of regeneration, of being born again. That is God's work. So then what is the purpose of evangelistic preaching and these evangelistic services. Well, it is firstly, as all preaching must be, it must always be with the intention and purpose of making the mind of God clear. As we have, have it expounded for us in the scriptures, we take these scriptural facts and we seek to make them clear so that no one is in any doubt whatsoever what we mean or what we are saying. To make absolutely certain that every single person knows the true facts of their existence, the true facts of this life. That is what the gospel is about. It's not about something that is separate from normal life, some separate little corner which sometimes we call on or enter into. This is life. This is the all-important thing in life, and that is to know the facts of our existence, 
as they have given to us in the word of God. And that is why we preach evangelistically, that is why we preach in order to make everything clear, as clear as they can be made to the person who is listening. So that whatever anyone says on the word, whatever they say, so that they will not be able to say, I did not understand what you were preaching. In order to do that, we must seek to preach the gospel in the beauty of simplicity. Paul talks about the simplicity that is in Christ. And it is terrible if we sometimes make that simplicity seem complicated. We must aim for the beauty of simplicity. Now we do that with one very important caution. A few years ago, a great and well-known mathematician <coughs> he published a book of his own thoughts and it was a very interesting book. He was not a Christian. He was of Jewish background. But there was a lot of wisdom. And one of the things he said was this. I've never forgotten. Make things as simple as they can be made, but no simpler. Because that's what sometimes happens. When the gospel is preached, and instead of leaving the issues to God, man tries to mechanize the whole thing. There's some kind of evangelistic sort of people coming forward or something like that. And it is, to me, such a terrible thing when an evangelist says to the people who have come forward, you have not come to me, you have come to Christ. Because that, to me, is going beyond what man has to do, what man can do, and leave the rest to God. Making things as simple as we can, but not trying to do what only God can do, and that is to bring a room through regeneration, through conversion, through being born again. That is God's work. In order to do that, we have to base what we say entirely on the Word of God. Now, we are looking tonight 
And what, what is perhaps the best known verse in the whole of Scripture, John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sometimes it's called the gospel in a nutshell. And there is some truth in that. But I believe that this verse is very often twisted and very often the true message does not come out because the emphasis falls entirely on God so loved the world. That is made the starting point. And the result is no gospel at all. So, this verse specifies not how much to what extent God loves the, God loved the world, but the nature of that loving of the world. So we have to move a little bit forward in the verse in order to get, to get what is the real starting point of this verse. If we are going to understand it and through it understand the facts of our existence, then we have to move forward to what must be given its fullness, must be given its due weight. And that is the phrase, should not perish. Now, I'm not bringing that out first because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm particularly dark in my thoughts or particularly pessimistic in my outlook. I'm bringing that first, 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 bringing it forward because I really desire and long that unbelievers should not rest simply in God love the world, but should rest in a true gospel of salvation. <coughs> We're going to understand the verse, this is where we must begin. Because it tells us that the world of sinners is perishing. All is not well with our existence in this life. Far from well if we have no Christ, if we have no salvation. Because in our natural state we are perishing. 
we are headed for a lost eternity. That is where we have to start with this verse, beginning with the problem. That is that every human being inherits the sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents. Not only inherits their sin, but inherits the guilt of their sin. The Bible makes that clear. And in all of our own lives, if we are honest, we will see that the facts of our own life bear that out. That we are by nature sinners. By nature, we are bound to perish if we remain in our natural state. That is the road we are on. This verse applies to those who are on that road. Man is unable to keep the law of God. Yet, he is morally responsible to obey the law of God. Cause he is by nature a sinner, it is impossible for him to keep the law of God. He is guilty before God and he has inherited the problem of the human race from Adam and Eve downwards. That is part of man's dilemma, part of the facts of our existence that we are unable and incapable of obeying the law of God, yet God holds us responsible to obey it and to keep it. We all have an appointment with God and we must all give an answer. Romans 14, 12 Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Not just people in the mass, but it's everyone, every single individual must give an account of himself to God. Now, you may have seen, you may say to me that I'm painting, painting a very dull picture. Well, I hope and I pray to God that I am preaching the truth and that I am preaching this verse as it stands. That this verse is about good news. Yes, it's the good news 
of solving a certain problem, <coughs> solving man's moral problem and his moral responsibility. <coughs> if that was not the starting point, then the gospel would have no relevance. The gospel has relevance to those who are perishing. The death of Christ on the cross has no relevance unless it is to solve this man's most radical problem that he is a sinner responsible to God. This whole life makes no sense except against the background of judgment. Just think about that. Just think about it. That say there would be no final judgment when every single person in the world that ever lived will give an account of themselves to God. If there is not going to be such a day and this world is meaningless. My existence is meaningless and so is yours. The existence of the best people have no more relevance than those of the wicked, the really wicked. Will God not judge? He will. And he will judge with perfect righteousness. Perfect judgment. That day will not be a day of people yelling, oh, that's not fair. Every mouth will be stopped because everyone will know that the judgment of God is perfect. Now let's look at it the other way. If there is this kind of judgment, Judgment, where everyone will give an account of himself to God, then your life and my life is full of meaning. Every thought, every word, every deed has meaning. Because every thought, word, and deed Oh, they all have consequences. <clears throat> there is a judgment. And because there is a judgment to come, then 
This life makes sense. Our existence makes sense. This world, the whole of its history, will make sense. On that day, everything will make sense. There's no point in thinking and hoping that death will be the end for you or for me. Because the fact of our existence is that we will never go out of existence. Beyond death, we will be there. Friend, there is nothing meaningless about your life or of mine. Cause we will never go into existence, and God will judge. We will live on neither in heaven nor in hell. There will be no, no escape. Some people think that death is their escape. And that's the end. Not so. Reading Revelation chapter 9 and verse 6. The solemn words of those who, as it says, will seek death and will not find it. And they will desire to die. But death shall flee from. Cause already, God has said, at that point, God has already said, there shall be no more death. Oh, there will be no more death in heaven. Of course you can believe that. But also, there is no death in hell. Because there, there, you will long to die. As it says here, death shall flee from. Shall flee from. Then suddenly this world is the world that God loved so wonderfully. This world, as I have described it the best way that I can. Sinner, helpless sinner. Sinners by nature. And as a result of that nature, they are sinners by practice. Get God loved that world. Not the world of righteous men. Certainly not the world of those who consider themselves righteous. <clears throat> but 
the world as it is. The world of the disobedient. The world that are already under God's own wrath and curse. The world that prefers darkness to light. world that is unwilling to bend the knee, unwilling to humble themselves before God. Rejecting his company. Rejecting his friendship. They don't want to be friends with God. Proud and self-sufficient. All these things are abhorrent in the eyes of God. And yet, it is that world that God loved. The world of sin. Loved so wonderfully, how could he? How could he love the unlovely? Well, the way we explain that is that this love is not like our love. We love the lovely and we tend not to love the unlovely. How can God love the unlovely? He does by sovereign love. Yes. What does that mean? It means love from within himself. <clears throat> love which has nothing in the thing loved to draw him, to attract him. Nothing of indebtedness to those whom he loves. Nothing of Fresh of any kind. God knows none of these things. He loves simply from within himself. We sometimes say, although it doesn't really explain, he loved because he loves. He loved with sovereign love. He loves the sinner not because he is clean or cleaner than others. Sovereign love. He loves according to his own will. It is not like our love, our love. Thirdly, Love 
never saved anybody. No. Even the love of God cannot save anybody. God did not save simply by love. But this love is put into action. Bible tells husbands, husbands love your love your wives as God loved the church. Gave itself for it. It's just a picture of the love of God. Picture in everyday life. God's love. He loved because he loved. But he also loved by giving himself for it, for, it, for the world. God loved in this way. But he gave his only begotten son. He gave him and gave him and gave him. He spared him not with it, but delivered him up for us all. Romans 8, 32. He spared him not, but delivered him up for us all. Well, some people might say, oh, but of course it was, it was his own, only beloved, only, only begotten son and beloved. So therefore, he would make it easy for him. He wouldn't put the full penalty of our sins on him. That's not what the Bible says. He spared him not. He gave him the pure, sinless, holy one. He gave into this world, this world of sinners, of enemies, of ravening wolves, As far as any warmth from men apart from the very few. It was a world of enemies, of haters of God. He gave him to suffer when I cursed it. Cross. Yes, the cross was where God made him a curse for us. Still, he says it so clearly in Galatians. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. 
on that cross, the Bible says, curse it, is anyone that hangs upon a tree. That is what crucifixion indicated to all who passed by. That's why the Jews, because of their hatred, wouldn't say just kill him. They wanted crucify him. Because they wanted on that cursed cross. And unknown to them, he made him a curse for us that we might escape the curse of the law. He gave, he gave him in order that he might pour out on him the wrath due to sin. Poured it out. As it says in Hebrews, he endured the cross How long for? He endured it until there was no wrath left. Yes. The cup of God's wrath was empty. For all those who were his people from all eternity. All of him would be saved in this life. Men are saved in eternity. All must be saved in this life. Now does this mean that everybody is saved? Well, not so. Because the verse tells us plainly who they are who will be saved. Whosoever believeth in him, in the one that God has sent, his beloved, whosoever it says, that means everyone that believes in him, everyone who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me will come to him. Yes. And at the same time, and only God himself knows the secret of this. At the same time, that he, that, that him that cometh to him, he will in no wise cast out, but will have everlasting life. He will have it here and now. Yes. It's not will have. They have everlasting life here and now in this world. Yes, enjoying foretastes of heaven. Imagine that. 
enjoying the company of Christ as we walk the way in this world. Because everyone who believes on him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You might say that you're going to enjoy heaven before you get to heaven. Yes? There are four tests. Glimpses. Very, very short. And also precious. Giving your shoes. And finish with a story. And you were an elder in Glasgow. Many years ago, an old elder, I didn't know him very well. But I realized, I knew that he had, had a, an amazing conversion from darkness to light. But he was characterized by having amazing assurance. He just lived his life there was never any doubt in his life that he was saved. The lady once said to him, but how can you be so sure? And his answer was, how can I be so sure? I'm there already, he says. May the Lord bless these things to us. Let's pray.